open your Bibles tonight, if you would please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 9. And it is always a privilege to be able to come back and into God's Word and look and see what God would have for us. I love the type of method that we have in in preaching God's Word. Maybe some people don't like my sermonizing. I, I, I don't know the way that I do things, but I like a teaching method. I like to take the Word of God and explain to you what it means so that you'll have some idea of what the Bible means. And we are in one of the most thrilling parts of the Bible, Uh, We've had months and months where we've been studying all of these terrible scenes of the time of tribulation, and we're now right on the brink of the central event that is the climax of world history. The most significant event that the world will ever experience has not happened yet. Now, some people might disagree with me on that statement, and they look back at some defining points in history, and they say, well, surely this was the most important event, and the world is never going to come to a time that's more significant than that event. And I'm sure that there are many Christians who would say, well, the most significant event has already happened, and that was when Jesus died on the cross, and there's nothing that could ever top that in importance. And I would agree that the death of the cross is the most important event that we've seen thus far. And we may even be able to argue that perhaps the incarnation, that's the most important event. Because without that, if Christ had not become a man and come to the earth, then he couldn't have died the death of the cross. And and there would be validity in either of those arguments. And we might also argue that the resurrection, that tops the list of the most important events. Because if Jesus had not come out of the grave, then we couldn't be justified from our sins, according to Romans 4, verse number 25. But if you follow the Bible as a whole, you start from the very beginning and you go all the way through it to the last part of Revelation, I do believe that we would have to conclude that the world's most significant event is yet to come. And we don't even have to guess what it is. The whole Bible, taken in perspective, leads us to that great day when the righteousness of Christ is established over this whole earth. When heaven and earth are in agreement, when all creatures are in harmony, and when all give God the eternal glory that he deserves, that is the most significant event in all of world history. Now, the incarnation of Christ and the death of Christ are milestones along that pathway to the great day. It's all part of God's unfolding eternal plan that brings us to the time of the everlasting kingdom of God. And so if you look at this correctly, you'll see God's creation of the world, then the permission for the fall of man, the cursing of the earth, the birth of Christ, his death, his resurrection, the redemption of man, the rapture, the events that we've read about in the tribulation. All of that is God's plan to reveal his glory. Now, in our studies, we're getting close to the last stage when everything is going to be wrapped up and God's eternal purpose is complete. And the wonderful, thrilling excitement of this is for the people of God is that God has allowed us to have a part in that plan. God's plan has always been a singular one. God is everything, and everything that's ever happened in the history of the world is to bring glory to God, and everything up to this point that's happened so far and what will happen in the future will bring the ultimate glory to God. Everything is simply God. Now, if you want to know why that I'm such a stalwart on the doctrines of grace, you can pin it all right here on this one doctrine, and that is the sovereignty of God. Because I cannot countenance for even a moment that God left anything in this eternal plan up to the, any of the slightest details of it up to the whims of man. 
Now, the Scripture says that God works all things after the counsel of his own will. And there's some people who say, well, yes, that's right. God does work everything after the counsel of his will. And what that means is that God has decided in his will to give man free will, and then God is going to wait and see how man reacts, and then God is going to react upon that reaction. And that's really nothing more than a convoluted scheme that has God chasing his own tail. And I say that in the most reverent way possible. When the Bible says that God works things after the counsel of his own will, it means that he works everything, that he orchestrates everything, that he purposes, and that God achieves everything that he intends. And this is what we see in the very first verse of the Revelation. Every step of this unfolding drama it fits into this plan that God has predetermined. It's just like fitting a, a jigsaw puzzle together. There's only one way that the pieces fit. And as you go along, you see the pieces start to come into place. And after piece after piece is put in, in the perfect order, then the whole picture comes into view. And I don't know how you could miss this because in our study, we keep going back to the Old Testament. And we look at that and see what the, what the prophet said in the Old Testament. Then we get into the New Testament and we see what Jesus said and what he taught. And then we look and see what the apostles taught. And we combine all of that teaching and then we say... All with one voice, aha, that's how this thing fits together. That's what that meant when I read the Old Testament. This is what Jesus meant, and this is what the apostles meant. And we see it all coming together, and all the pieces of this puzzle fitting together into the plan that God has decided from the foundation of the world. And folks, the picture is always the glory of God. And when it's all finished, it will be the glory of God. And when all is said and done, it will be God that's done it all. Now, you need to be thankful that you're in a church that sees it that way because the greatest joy that a Christian have is that God should receive the greatest glory. That's what makes us happy when God receives his glory. So God has determined, he has designed salvation this way, and whenever a man tries to put his paws on what God has done, there's always going to be a disaster. So Revelation is not a book about the tribulation, It's not about secrets, it's not about the Antichrist, it's not about fallen angels, it's not about economic woes. It comes from the very first verse in the book of Revelation that tells us its purpose. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this is where we are. We're right now at the brink of the full revelation of Jesus Christ, what God has intended from the very beginning and the way that we should see him. And so here we are, after months and months of study of the tribulation upon the earth, we come to a scene of rejoicing in heaven. All of heaven is geared up, and they're all excited about this because Christ is about to seize that everlasting throne, and sin is going to be finally put down. Now, if you want to look just a little bit ahead, you'll see where it's going to happen. In verse number 11 of chapter 19, it says, And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Verse 16, And he hath hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we're getting there. It's not going to be long. And in between here and there is another blessed event. Here is another big piece of this puzzle that gets filled in because... It's so thrilling because as you look around the room tonight, hopefully the majority of people here, and I hope all of the people here, will be a part of a coming wedding celebration. And this is when the bridegroom takes his bride. 
And we're going to talk about that tonight, and we're going to talk about it for the next few weeks, all the way into the, I guess it's now up to about the last of January. We've got a break there for Christmas, but we're going to talk about this for quite some time. And our text verses this evening are in chapter 19, verses 7 through 10. But we're going to back up just a little bit to get a run at this and fill in some things here. So we'll start our reading in verse number 4, chapter 19 and verse number 4. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude... And as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints." And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy." Now, the previous messages in this 19th chapter leading up to where we are tonight was about the hallelujah chorus that's being sung in heaven. There's this great swelling throng of the redeemed of God in heaven, this great multitude that with one thunderous voice sings out, shouts out, hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And that singing and shouting is for the purpose that we find here in verse number 7 where it says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him For the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. The marriage of the Lamb is come. Now, you'll notice the title of the message tonight is The Bridegroom and the Bride. And with everything that I've said thus far in the introduction, you should understand why I list the bridegroom first. Now, normally, when you think about weddings, the attention is focused on the bride. The wedding is the bride's day, and... In our uh, culture, the bridegroom is just that poor schmuck that got lucky and found somebody that would put up with him and married him. You know, my wife tells me that all the time. You should be glad that I married you because no one else would put up with you. And I hear that often, and deep down I know she's right. I know I'm not as caring as I should be. I have all my eccentricities. I'm selfish. I'm headstrong. I'm not as gentle as I should be, so she's right. I'm very lucky Very blessed to have someone that would put up with me. But this is how... I heard an amen there. (laughs) This is how it is in our culture. We put all the focus on the bride. And I don't deny this, that if men treated their wives as they should, and we treated them the way the Apostle Paul says that we should treat them, then marriage would be a more blessed event than it actually is. If we treated our wives, as Paul said, that we would love our wives, even as Christ loved the church, I promise you that uh, you'd wake up singing every day. Both parties would. Well, that is actually the key to the passage here. The key always and only is Christ. And we have to put the bridegroom first because despite our culture, this wedding is really all about him. This is his day. And the whole introduction of the sermon is to show you this is his day. 
This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And since he is the bridegroom, he will always go first and all attention will be focused upon him. Now, tonight I've only got enough time to kind of get our feet wet just a little bit in this. We don't have time to wade all the way in and to pull the whole passage together so that you understand everything here. So what I want to do just right now before we get into this is I want to tell you a little bit about the next message first. And you can look forward to understanding a little bit better about where I'm headed. What we're looking at here is a great wedding feast. Now, the Scriptures often use the metaphor of marriage to describe the relationship that God has with his people. And I believe that God put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he started a marriage there. He put those two together so that we would understand, have a a visual picture here, some knowledge of the intimate relationship that God has with his people. Marriage is a sacred union. And whenever I do a wedding ceremony, I always like to to make mention of that. Marriage is sacred. Uh, There's a reason why we call it holy matrimony. And the reason most people probably don't understand, it's because marriage is the highest expression of love that God has given us between two people. It's the greatest expression of of love in the human race that we can understand. It's sacred to God. And whenever we take something that's sacred to God and we belittle that, We make light of it like people do in marriages today, like it really isn't important. And you hear people say, oh, it's just a piece of paper and things like that. They don't really understand what marriage is all about and what the importance of it is. And when you mess with marriage, you're going to end up in deep, deep trouble if you don't have a marriage that's built the way that God wants it to be built. Marriage is given by God, and marriage is emblematic of the love that God has for his people. God's love is determinative. It is a a conscious, planned decision. And it's not based upon emotion. It's not based upon excitement or any kind of deceptive things that someone might do. It's determinative by God. He determines to love us. As we'll see a little bit later, it's not even determined by any action of the bride. Uh, in, In this marriage, the bridegroom takes the bride as a supreme act of commitment. And it's the result of what? God has planned in his own mind from eternity. So I just want to get that into, your, into the picture, into your mind, that marriage, this is a marriage that's about to take place, and it's the fulfillment of God's commitment to his people. Now let's talk just a little bit about this marriage and how that it was arranged. Now the customs in Bible times are quite a bit different than what we practice today. And uh, we're going to talk about first here tonight, and this is where we'll spend our time this evening, the contract for marriage. Now, some of you might be a little bit familiar with arranged marriages. An arranged marriage is one that starts out long before the two parties that are to be married even know each other. And so this is not a matter of boy meets girl and boy falls in love with girl, the girl falls in love with the boy, and they must have one another, and so boy and girl get married. This is not about boy and girl falling in love. This is about the parents. It's about the parents making a contract with one another. The parents like each other. And the parents see something that's advantageous in putting these two families together. And so they decide that there's going to be a marriage. And this happens while the two that are to be married are still children. They aren't thinking about marriage. And it can even happen before a boy even comes to the place where he likes girls. And vice versa for the girl. Now, this might seem quite strange... But in this type of marriage, there is a contract that's drawn up very early, and it's called the bride's engagement. That contract is actually the engagement. 
And so when the parents have done their negotiating, there is a dowry that's paid to the bride's parents, and that seals the deal. And at that point, the children are considered to be married. Now, it might actually be years before the ceremony ever takes place, maybe years before they ever live together as husband and wife, but because of the contract, because that's signed and because that's made, they're considered to be already married right then. And that helps us to understand just a little bit better why Joseph was so upset when Mary was found out to be pregnant. According to the customs, they were already legally married, even though a ceremony hadn't taken place. Uh, They were bound to another one another. And so when, she, when Mary became pregnant, Joseph was highly upset about this because that meant that Mary had been unfaithful to this marriage contract. Matthew describes that horrible ordeal for Joseph, at least from his perspective, in the first chapter. And there it says in beginning the 18th verse, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when his, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to put her or to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. So it says here that Mary was espoused to Joseph. That is another way of saying that they were engaged or she was betrothed. Or another way that you could put that is that she was in a contract to be Joseph's wife. And so according to the law, they were already married. And Joseph had the right, though he had not yet touched Mary, He had the right to bring her before the judges and to have her condemned for adultery because he thought she had broken the contract. Now, rather than do that, Joseph was a kind and compassionate man. He loved Mary, and in his sorrow over this ordeal, he decided that he didn't want to do her harm, that he would release her from the contract. He wouldn't take her before judges to be condemned. And I might add this, that God's wisdom was in all of that. That was God's perfect plan unfolding, and it happened exactly the way God chose it for it to work because God chose the right man for this job. And what he did with Joseph was to tenderize his heart in this particular situation. Joseph would not have been normally that way, but God chose to tenderize him and prepare him to be a suitable father for Jesus and to raise him and to train him as a child. And so this engagement then is a contract that's drafted. It's a settled matter long before the marriage ceremony takes place. Now I want you to keep that in mind for just a minute because I'm going to come back to that in the end. Now secondly is the bridegroom's expense. The the contract is sealed with a dowry and that makes the bride as sure to belong to the bridegroom as if the ceremony is over. Now, this might be somewhat of a crude way to put this, but in our way of thinking, the dowry paid was commensurate with the value that was placed upon the bride. In poorer families, the dowry wouldn't be very much because the bridegroom's family couldn't afford to pay very much. Uh, Poor families didn't go looking for brides among rich families. Uh, The dowry for them would be too expensive. And so looking at it in those terms... A union with a wealthy family was considered to be more valuable than one with a poor family. So the bride was prized more highly because it was the family relationship that they're after all along. So what that did was to keep marriages mostly between the wealthy and the wealthy and between the poor and the poor. You don't see any crossover there because uh, of the dowry. The dowry limited, especially for poor people, what kind of bride could be chosen. 
Now, I find myself that that's a, a fascinating aspect of this in connection with the contract that Christ has made for his bride. Now, since Jesus is the bridegroom, what would you expect that the dowry, what would be the dowry that would be paid? Well, Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 25 answers that question for us when it says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. So the dowry that Christ paid for his bride was his own life. Now, what is the highest price that can be paid? I think we all know the answer to that. The highest price that you can pay is your life. Jesus said, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And the idea is that your life is more valuable than all of the wealth that you can ever accumulate. When a thief accosts you and he says to you, your money or your life, he's banking that you're going to give him your money because you're not going to give up your life. That's more valuable to you. Well, how valuable is life? And more importantly, we would have to ask, how valuable is the life of the Son of God? There's all kinds of avenues that we could take to explore that, but whether we want to admit this or not, we put more value on some lives than we do on others. Now, hear me out. When a homeless man dies in a park, frozen on a park bench on a night like tonight, and they find him the next day, what do they do? Well, they put a little blurb in the paper, and people forget about that even before they read it. I remember when President Reagan died that I was glued to the TV for hours. I was listening to all the important dignitaries as they lauded all of his accomplishments. They eulogized him for hours. A couple of years ago, after the Shepherds Conference, I took Saturday and I went to the Reagan Museum and I went to see President Reagan's grave. Now, I think that myself, that President Reagan was a great man, and uh, I don't think that there are too many people who would say that his life was not more valuable than a homeless man who died in the park. And if you don't want to know the truth of the matter, if I were to die right here in this pulpit tonight, that's what would happen to me. I'd probably get a little bitty blurb in the paper. Somebody would read that, and it wouldn't be long before it's all completely forgotten. But we don't do that with lives of great men because we really do consider that their lives are more valuable. Now, thinking of it in that way, what about the Son of God? How valuable was his life? What did he do that was greater than the greatest man who's ever lived? Who is better known in all the history of the world than Jesus Christ? Who is it that actually divides time by the fact that he was born? Everything before him is before Christ, B.C. Everything since his birth is Anno Domini in the year of the Lord, and it will be until Jesus comes again. And so he had a tremendous impact on the world. And what I said before, what, what happened in his life and his death are the most significant events that have happened in all the history of the world up until this time. Now, you take that, and you see how valuable that the dowry is. Jesus paid the highest price that could ever be paid for a bride. You can't calculate the value of the dowry. The worth of it is infinite, because what he paid for was so expensive. What Jesus did was to pay God a debt of sin that was owed. Jesus paid for sin, and it was a debt that couldn't be paid in any other way. So that cost was infinite, so the price paid had to be infinite. Well, with such a high price, what did he get for it? Well, you would expect that he would get the very best of the best, that he would get a bride that was commensurate with the price that was paid, that he would get a bride that came from high society, 
The richest families of the world, that would be where he would get his bride. That's what the way the dowry works. I mean, the very best will fetch the very highest price. But you know what Jesus actually got when he paid the dowry? He got the filthiest scum of all. In fact, he got a bride that from top to bottom was full of bruises and wounds. He got a sickly bride, one that was ghastly, one that had the stench of death upon her. He got a bride that scorned him, and she never would have chosen him, even though he was the stellar catch. And so he went low, and he went low. He went to the very lowest. The apostle Paul wrote, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Nobility marries nobility. And if there ever was anyone that was truly noble, if there was someone who was truly wise and someone who was really mighty, they wouldn't be called. Now remember, Jesus was blasted for hanging out with with publicans and sinners. In other words, Jesus made his friends among the most despicable that were in society. And he broke all the rules. Now, and I don't mean that he committed a sin, but he broke all the rules of etiquette for the scribes and the Pharisees. And all the rules that they had were as, were as uh, uh, imperfect as they were. And it made no sense to them that the Messiah would come into the world and that he would choose a bride that had nothing to do with them, that would be outside of their society, someone that they considered to be terrible sinners. Why would the Messiah do this? And so I think the point is made here, the bridegroom's expense was great. It cost him his life, it cost him his dignity, it cost him his humiliation, it cost him separation from his father. But he purchased exactly whom he wanted. He had his eye on the bride, and although she didn't want him, he wanted her. And what he was going to do was to clean her up. He would make her beautiful and worthy to be married to him. And so she would be the apple of his eye, and he would hide her under the shadow of his wings. You know, as my new favorite song says, What a love, what a cost, we stand forgiven at the cross. Now that brings me to the final point for this evening. I wanted to come back to the contract for just a minute. So we're going to talk about the Father's Exchange. I'd like to spend a whole lot more time than we have on this, but I do want to give you a brief reminder of when the contract was settled. The time of this engagement, or the time between an engagement and a marriage ceremony could often be a long period of time. And uh, the contract was drafted up sometimes years before the children even knew what was going on. Only later did they find out that they were in a contract to be married, and they were soon, you know, at some point in their lives, they were going to meet their bride. Well, this marriage in Revelation chapter 19 has been under contract so long that we can't even measure the time. You know why? Because this was a contract that was settled in eternity past. It was done without our consultation. It didn't have anything to do with a negotiation on our part. We didn't negotiate for it. Uh, no one that's going to be in this bride will be there because it's based upon the acceptance of Jesus' proposal. They're not in the bride because they entered into a contract with Jesus. The contract is not with him And they didn't just decide, well, I'm going to spurn his advances. I'm not going to spurn them any longer, rather. No, the contract is far outside of those boundaries. This bride is not in the negotiations because this was settled before she was born. And the contract has nothing to do with her consent because that contract was made between the father and the son. And so the contract goes back before the foundation of the world. 
before God created the world, before he made the very first man, this is what he planned for his glory. So he created a world. He allowed Adam to fall into sin. He sent Jesus to die and to redeem his people. And now Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to pick up that bride, and he's going to take her, and he's going to rule in his kingdom, because that was determined according to an everlasting plan that would glorify him. So it was never about the bride. You know, we, we, I keep saying things about salvation. is really not all about us. It's all about God. It was never really about the bride. It's all about the bridegroom because this is the way that he's chosen to glorify himself. So there, there was a contract long before her birth, and the scriptures are so numerous about this that it's fantastic futility to even deny it. In Ephesians chapter 1 It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we are bound to give thanks always, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because... uh, to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. And then in Romans eight twenty nine and 30, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. There are people who object to that, and they say, well, no, what, what's happened here is that God has predetermined that those that are saved will be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's absolutely true. But the, the thrust of this verse, these the verses, is not to point us to the fact of what God predestinated. God predestinated sanctification, that's a what. The Bible says, for whom he did predestinate. Those are people. So God predestines people to be sanctified, predestines people to their salvation, their justification, and so on. Now, the timing of this is precise as God could make it because it's pinpointed in eternity past. Now, let's talk for just a minute about the Father's exchange. The exchange is that he would give up his son in order to get his people. He would give up his son in order that the son could get the bride that he wanted. And so what he would do then is that he would exchange the life of the son for the eternal life of the bride. In John chapter 17, it says, As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And so how will the bride be privileged to meet the father? Well, they can never meet unless they're introduced by the son. The exchange in order to be included in God's family is that Christ would give his life to purify the bride so that she would be fit to come into the presence of God. And so God the father and God the son made this contract for the eternal life of the bride. And so he chose her, and then he sent Christ to go get her. And he never said anything like this. You you know, I hope that you're successful. I I, uh, uh, get as many as you can, and I hope that she doesn't refuse you. Don't come back empty-handed. You need to do something to try to persuade her to love you. So get as many as you can. No. No, no, no. He knew the bride, and he chose the bride. He predestined the bride. He called the bride. He justified the bride, and he'll glorify the bride. That's what we're reading about in Revelation. And all of this is accomplished because Christ purchased her with his own blood. 
So the contract is made, and the contract is executed, and now the bride is coming home to meet the Father. Jesus says in uh, that 17th chapter of John in the 4th verse, I have glorified thee on earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Now what is his glory? Well, his glory is to have the bride with him, because that's the entire intention of the creation. He would have a bride to glorify him, and he would love her as he did in eternity past, and he'll love her into eternity future. Isn't that a much better theology of God? I mean, doesn't that really resonate in your soul, rather than to have a marriage that might or might not take place? I mean, just depending on whether this uh, uh, ugly, hook-nosed bride could could make herself pretty enough that that he would go after her. And that she would step forward and she would say, you know, I think I will have him after all. I mean, he's done so much pleading for me. He's done so much begging for me. I don't want to disappoint him. Well, you have the wrong picture of what's going on. I don't like to mix metaphors, but I think I have to here. This is where the shepherd goes after that one lost sheep. And when the shepherd finds the sheep, what does he do? He takes that sheep and he grabs it by the front legs and he grabs it by the back legs and he throws that sheep over his shoulder And he takes the sheep back home. And you know the reason he does that? Because that's nothing but a dumb sheep. Sheep's not going to wander in on his own. He has to go get it. And when he goes and gets it, he grabs it and throws it on his shoulders and he takes it home. That's the bride, bridegroom going to get his bride. That's the way he does it. He goes after the one that he wants and he brings her home. So that's Jesus getting the bride. He has her eye on her. She doesn't get away. God purposed it, God planned it, God chose her, the Son redeemed her, she belongs to him, and there will be a ceremony because the contract can't be broken. And so there you have it. That's a look at the contract. That's just the beginning place as we talk about the bride. And we'll come back to this and we'll talk about it some more in the next few weeks. Thank the Lord that the bridegroom had a plan. God had a plan. There was a contract And that's why we sit here tonight redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. There was a contract between the Father and the Son to redeem us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and this just wonderful revelation that's made here about Jesus Christ and the fact, Lord, that you've chosen a bride to be your own. And Lord, being in your church, we're so thankful that you've called us to be a part of that bride. And we just ask you, Lord, to help us to remain faithful and true. And we know that you are going to take us home to be with you. Bless your people tonight, Lord. We pray for anyone here who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would come to that saving knowledge even this very evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand.